Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans podcast. Once again, this is Clint Edwards as your host for discussing all things relating to the kindreds of Scotland. Thank you for joining me today, or this morning, or this evening, whenever it is that you're listening to this. But I am grateful for you. And today, I'm excited to discuss the, what, you know, we, the, I've had a, a comment recently on the Scottish Clans Facebook page, a message that came through that saying, yeah, in, in a lot of society, the Highlanders, they're sexy. What else can we say about them? The Highlanders are sexy. And I'm not referring specifically to the men and the kilts or the ladies or whatever. I'm just saying the whole topic and culture with the kilts and the bagpipes and the claymores and the clans and all that stuff, it's sexy. But they get all the attention. And I want to share with you something that a gentleman named Robert Williams just shared with me. This is a fairly recent message. Uh, Robert, if you're listening to this, uh, it won't you know it won't be as of the time you sent this, but I'm reading this. About 14 minutes after you sent it, so hopefully, hopefully you like the response time. I wish I could say my response time has always been this good for this podcast, but it has not. But he just—I was sitting down to record this, and I saw this message come through. Let me just read to you all what Robert Williams sent to me. He says, "Hey." Love the podcast. I like your inclusion of the Border Reavers. That's my area I grew up in, top of the Pennines and Carlisle, and often gets overlooked over the sexy Highlander stories, but they were wild people as well. Very good horsemen, and coincidentally, I grew up riding fell ponies in the area, but not stealing sheep. I am wondering if you have ever come across information about the surname Duncan. And so I'm just... I'm breaking from the quote here for a second. That's for all of you listeners. That's D-O-N-K-I-N. As in Delta Oscar November, Kilo India November. He says, back to quoting him, That's my maternal line, but we know very little. It is obviously a Northumberland-based name, and speculation is it's a derivation of Duncan. Would love to know any info. Thanks. I like your referencing sources and how much weight each holds in the scholarly realm, Rob. Rob, thank you. Thank you. That kind of input, that's what I thrive on for this. In fact, for everybody, I I don't, when you tune into these episodes, what I hope you're not expecting is a comprehensive, 100% scholarly breakdown of every single subject. I wish I had access to the sources and the time to make that happen, but I don't. So often what happens is I get started on a subject that's interesting to me, and I do a little research, and enough to fill up a, an episode on information that I can share with you. And really how I want you to look at this is a conversation starter. Look, here's a guy that likes the, interest, the same topic that you're interested in, and we can talk about it together. And if you look at it like this, it'll be not disappointing and maybe even surprise you with some sources, like when I'm able to grab a hold of some scholarly sources. That last episode about the McLeods, we were able to get a hold of some good scholarly stuff from Ennius Mechanic. So, Rob, let's get back to Rob here. Rob, yes, the Border Reavers were wild. They, look, ladies and gentlemen, the Border Reavers, the Highlanders have nothing on the Border Reavers. When it comes to just straight up 
awesome stories. They, the Border Reavers seem to be every bit as rough of an environment. And, and I'm not trying to glorify violence when I say that, but it does make for really interesting history. And in the Highlands, you find really cool stuff. Most of it's in a violent context, though. But the Border Reavers, the main difference, and this is what I did my whole master's thesis on, was comparing these two regions of Scotland, specifically in the realm of warfare. The main difference, well, I'll just name a couple of main differences. Language and how they fought. Highlanders, Highlanders tended to be light infantry, border reavers, light cavalry. They were, they were mounted. And, and as, as much as I love the Highlanders, and that's the, the Highland culture is what got me sucked in to, to this topic, this, this part of history, is I was learning about my McFarland ancestors. And they were, they were Highlanders in every sense of the word. If, and I don't know how you would measure how Highland you were or not. Were the Farquharsons of e- the Eastern Highlands, were they less Highland than the Mackays of, of Strathnaver way up in the north? Or the McLeods of the Isle of Lewis who were Hebridians? Were they less Highland than the, well, the, those branches of the Campbells that were just right over there on the west coast or the McDougals? Uh, you know, I, what, what do you use to, to measure that by? I don't know, but the McFarlands were Highland. They were Gaelic-speaking. That's even pretty well attested specifically to that clan. I could go deeper into that, but check back on my episode about the McFarlands and the McGregor Alliance. The, would you you measure it by the how high the peaks are in that area? You have the uh, the Trosach Mountains that are there around the northern end of Loch Lomond that were part of their territory. That's they have a couple of Monroes in their territory, which are over three thousand feet. Which is kind of funny because where I'm recording this podcast in my basement right now is over a mile high. It's just interesting, but I'm not trying to take away when you're there. And it's all relative where you're starting off, what you're looking up at. They're mountains. I'm not trying to say they're not. Anyway, and that's where my interest started off was Highland. I digressed a little bit there. But, but that's so. And then, I, but I got to learning about border reavers. Look, border reavers were all of that. They just spoke a different language, and they were mounted on horses. They had feuds. They were bold courageous they had a lot of the same values as like as far as valor and combat i mean i don't know Di- different cultures for sure the the celtic the the gallic culture of the highlands which has a lot of cultural continuity with the irish culture but um yes yeah, so that was different i don't know i you, you just can't the Border Reavers were something else, and it is very exciting history to study, and I've really enjoyed it getting into that. So thanks, Rob, for that that comment there. As far as the name Duncan, I I mean I, I I'm going my mind's going down before you even before you even mentioned that speculation is it's a de- derivation of Duncan. My mind was when you just first said the name Duncan, I was automatically thinking that's got to be just a a different way of pronouncing Duncan. 
And so, and, and it's not crazy that that name would end up down on the borders, even though Duncan is a Gallic name. We see it all over places, not just in the Gaeltacht. So, anyway, there's, there's a thought on that, but I don't have a lot better inf- information on that. I would, I would be thinking, how far back can you trace your mom's line? Where does it, where, what location, at the, at the very earliest that you can trace it back to, where are you in Scotland then? And, and that might have some bearing on where you go from there. Anyway, thank you for that. And to reach back to the message that I talked about last time, I had Jeff Trimble of the Turnbull clan said, hey, can you, can you look into this a little bit? Well, that's kind of how I got in the subject of what I'm going to talk about today, even though it's not the Turnbulls. I started looking for information on the Turnbulls. I, Mr. Trimble, I really had a hard time finding, especially anything scholarly. Most of it was just the same, you know, the, and look, I'm not trying to put these websites down that are like, like uh, Scott Clans and Electric Scotland and some of these places. They, they're, they're good at what they're for. They're for an introductory or even the Wikipedia articles. They're for introducing you to the subject. They don't claim to be going deep into it. It's like, hey, for those of you who are just barely finding out that you have Scottish ancestry, here's something to go on. Here's a few paragraphs on your clan. And they're, they're not meant to take you deep. They're doing exactly what they're trying to do. So, so I'm not trying to be derogatory toward those. In fact, in the future, I would, when I get the right um, hardware and technology set up here that I can start doing guests, I would really like to reach out to the Moffats who run Scott Clans to, um, I can't remember what the gentleman's name is, but the, the electricscotland.com is... It's, it's got a lot of stuff on there. And, and in, ca- in both cases, I might want to point out and once again, you can go back to my topic on my, some of my earlier podcasts where I talk about sources. In, in, in both cases, they have links to more reading if you want to get farther into it. So I should, I should mention that. But the, at face value, the, the articles that you're reading on the clan itself, it's just introductory material. And really for the Turnbulls, that's mostly what I've able to, able to find. Now, I have not, I'm not claiming that I have found everything that is out there. But I did, I want you to know, Turnbulls, Trimbles, whatever version of that name, that clan you come from. I want you to know that I've, I've looked out of that. I will mention, I've been talking about the Border Reavers. They were Border Reavers, and apparently they were every bit the Border Reavers. They were unruly. And, but really, I don't have a lot to present to you that's not already presented in the sources that I just meant, or that I just mentioned. And so, so, but what I, in the looking after that, I did it that did take my mind down to the border country. And so, what I want to talk to you about today is centered right down there in the borders. So, it's, it's a very interesting topic. Let's talk about the clans of Dunbar and whom. I actually bumped into the Dunbars as I was reading, I think it was Stephen Boardman's PhD thesis about, about the feuds in Scotland and, and the kin based society. and and he started mentioning the, I, th- I think that was what the, I can't remember the exact name of the, the I hadn't planned on talking about this. Once again, this is kind of a stream of podcast, stream of consciousness podcast, and it's not scripted. And so I'm just talking about stuff that I like and that I've studied up on. I do have some notes here that I'm going off of, but I don't always stick to them. So I'm sorry, I, I don't have the name of that PhD thesis, but it was Stephen Boardman, PhD thesis. I'll bet you can find it with that much information. And yeah, and just and sometimes if I find this stuff on open source, I really don't feel bad about posting links to it. 
on the Facebook page. And I need to be better about that. I need to start really loading some links up on there because I do have access to a lot of cool stuff. But um, sometimes, like in the case of Vinyas McKinnick, he actually sent me some emails and stuff to help me out with, with some of his things that he's published. And where he was hooking me up and doing me a favor, sometimes I would feel bad if, I don't know, sometimes that stuff's copyrighted and like, I can't remember who, who some of the stuff is, but some of the universities make you pay. He's with the University of Glasgow, for those of you who didn't listen to the last episode. He's a researcher there. And and I would feel bad if I posted those, just posted the Word document on the Facebook page where he's, anyway, there's some problems there. But if I just found the stuff open source, I really don't have any problem giving that to you. And I think this Stephen Boardman's PhD thesis, I did find open source. Anyway, that's talking about Macintoshes and some of the feuds they had, but it does mention the Dunbars pushing in, and there was a branch of the Dunbars that had settled up there in the Murray, what we'd call the province of Murray, and that the boundaries of that, depending on what time period, look different. But you're up on the, the south shore of the Murray Firth, up, you know, Inverness would be the biggest city in, in this area we're talking about, but mostly I'm talking about to the east of Inverness or south. And the Dunbars had a branch of the family up there, and they had some problems. The Macintoshes and the Dunbars had some issues there. So I remember bumping into this clan a long time ago. Now, this, the Dunbars and the Hooms, they're spelled home, but everything I've read says they pronounce it Hoom, which is, it sounds about right. Anyway... Both of these clans, are, they're closely related clans. And when I say closely, I'm not talking like the people today, if you've got a Dunbar here and a Hume here, that they're like, no, we're like third, fourth cousins. I'm not t- talking about that, but they come from, they branch off of the same line, okay? And what I really want to talk to you about, I think it's a very fascinating person in history. They're both descended from a guy named Ghostpatrick. Ghostpatrick is a former Earl of Northumberland, or Northumbria, and he was... He, he, he eventually had to flee England, and he settles in Scotland. I'm going to go into this a little bit more, uh, little more detail here in a second. He settles in Scotland, and he's given the earldom of Dunbar. Now, why is this Ghostpatrick so interesting? Well, first of all, let's just start with his name. His name is Cumbrian. Ghostpatrick is kind of a, a composite of the three different ethnic identities in this part of the world at this time. And he seems to represent the very best of all of them. He seems to be a very capable person who more, more often than not people like to have on their side unless he rises up in rebellion against them, in which case the king has to get rid of him, which is how he ends up in Scotland. But it's not like he was a... To say he was an Englishman would really be oversimplifying the thing just because he's the Earl of Northumbria. You see... Let's, I'll get to the, the Cumbrian name in a second, but let's talk about his paternal line. There's different theories about the ancestry of Ghostpatrick. I just want to, want to mention that right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the one that I saw pop up the most as I was reading on this. Oh, by the way, for people who are like the fact that I like to state my sources, um, let, me just, let me just go back here and tell you where I learned about this stuff from. So first of all, I found a book that's on, it's on Google Books. It's by Edward Augusta Freeman. It's called The History of the Norman Conquest of England. And so he, that's where I'm pulling some of my information. Now, this, this source brings me to one of my pet peeves. I hate it when I don't hate, I want to be clear of what I hate. 
I hate when they do this. I don't hate the people who do it. I hate it when you're reading a scholarly paper and they're making a point and they're, they're quoting a source and they quote it from the original language and do not offer a translation in the text or in a footnote. Throw me an ever-loving bone. Yes, I did take two semesters of Latin my freshman year in college because I was able to, it just seemed like it would be a good idea at the time and it didn't take any prerequisites and it was really helpful. I use the stuff I learned in that class to this day. Thank you, professors Damien and Titchener. But I don't speak Latin. I can kind of identify some of the words in there and kind of get an idea a little bit. But I can't just read classical or medieval Latin and know what it's saying, let alone that it's supporting your point. And it's, it almost seems to me kind of smug, like, oh, you don't speak Latin or French or whatever the language they just quoted that I don't know. Oh, well, if you don't already speak this language, you probably won't understand the nuances of my argument anyway, so I'm not going to bother throwing in the translation in here. At least put it in the footnote. Have some ever-loving mercy on those uneducated, ignorant hillbillies who are have taken the time to read your paper and just give us some translation. All right, I'm, I'm done with that now. Just going to breathe in, breathe out, let the negative energy escape. And we're going to go on to the rest of the sources. I've got an article that I found on clandunbar.com called The Origins of Clan Dunbar. Also, I found on a website called thewildpeak.wordpress.com who was the Cumbrian Earl Ghostpatrick. That actually had the most information on this that I could find. It seemed to be very well written, but I could not find the actual author nor what his credentials are. So take it for what it's worth. I'm just citing my sources here. I went to also clan, clanwhom.org. That's clan-whom, H-O-M-E.org. And I also got my handy-dandy Scottish clan and, encyclopedia, clan and family encyclopedia. And so here's the deal. The Wikipedia page, which, yes, I do check it. Get off my back. Go back to the sources episode, and I tell you all about what I think about Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page for the Dunbars and the Hooms is pretty much, I mean, it's almost quoting word for word out of the Collins Scottish clan and family encyclopedia. Word for, and, and there's like a, a couple of spots where they're not. But if, I mean, just go ahead and check, check out the articles yourself on Wikipedia for, for Clan Dunbar and Clan Whom. And, and look at the footnotes. They do, they do cite sources. But holy cow, it is almost taken word for word right out of this, this book. So there you go. And that's one reason I felt like I had to buy the book because it's so frequently quoted. And if you want to, if you're familiar with this source, maybe have your own opinion on it, you can go back to my sources episode, which I've already mentioned like three or four times in this particular episode. Go back there and I'll tell you what I think about that particular book. But it's useful. I've got some problems with it, but not a, not a, like not a, I don't know. Go back and check out the sources and episode and I'll tell you all about it. All right. Let's talk about, let's get back to Ghost Patrick now. There's some of my sources. All right. 
his in his paternal line there's differences of opinion on who he really is but the one that kept, keeps on coming up is that he's a he's a grand wait how do they say it? a grandson of a guy who's pretty prominent in this time period of history what time period is that you ask we're looking at the early 11th century or 1000s i kind of like i know everybody likes to say 11th century but and then it's different because we're really talking about the 10 hundreds and that makes sense to me why that is but I'll I I, I kind of prefer to just talk about what years those are instead of what century that is so but I don't I don't have strong feelings one or the other early 11th century early 10 hundreds we're looking at a gentleman named Crinon of Dunkeld or Crinon but the, a lot of times I read it with an accent mark over the a so Crinon of Dunkeld so the grand, he's the grandfather, according to, to some sources, of this Ghost Patrick that we're talking about. What does that mean for Ghost Patrick? It means that, so the Crinon of Dunkeld becomes that like, okay, so we're thinking of, to relate it to something that you might be familiar with, the Macbeth story of Shakespeare fame. The story, the real history that he was drawing his play from is this time period right here? You got Macbeth, King Duncan that was killed by Macbeth, and all, and then you got Malcolm the Third, the Canmore, who's coming from his exile in England and taken back the Scottish throne. All that stuff. This is smack dab in this time period that we're talking about. Crinon of Dunkeld was Duncan's father, so Crinon's son, other son that they claim is Ghost Patrick's father would have been a half-brother to King Duncan, which means that Ghost Patrick, this gentleman, is very closely related. If, if this genealogy is correct, I might add. If it's correct, he's very closely related to this ruling dynasty of Scotland, and he's a, he's, his, his ethnic stock on his dad's side, his background, is Gallic royalty. Okay, the very highest echelons of Scottish society. And this is and if you read the works of David Brune, who is a, a well known professor that's and writes during this time period in the formation of the Scottish nation in its very early stages. Um you have this is when the concept of Scotland was really in its formative years. So you've got Ghost Patrick's very close kin to them. That's his that's his paternal line. However, his he's got a a Cumbric last name. Okay, what's Cumbric? Well, Cumbric, so if you go back in time, farther before than what we're talking about, okay. Well, okay, let's go way back. Before anybody starts before the Romans, before the Anglo Saxons. According to kind of the mainstream theory here, now I've I've read some of Stephen Oppenheimer's stuff that says that Germanic languages may have been spoken in what's now England before Romans were even there. Then that the Anglo-Saxon people, Angles and the Saxons, Frisians, Jutes, were not the first people to bring Germanic languages post-Roman era. Okay, I'm I'm aware of some of those theories. I'm just going to stick with mainstream theory. So. What's now England, Scotland, and Wales was covered with with people who spoke a P-Celtic language. All right, so let's fast forward. P-Celtic is, is the same as a Brythonic language. You break the Celtic language family into two sides of the family. You got Q-Celtic, 
that's your goidelic. That's that was represented today by Gaelic in Scotland, Irish or Gaelic in Ireland, and Manx in the Isle of Man. That's your Q Celtic side. So whenever those languages, so you got those. Well, before I get to that, you have the P Celtic side, which is represented today by Welsh, Cornish, and Breton. And the the theory goes here that the a, a distinguishing feature between these two languages is that when in the Q Celtic languages, in the Goidelic languages, when you have a k sound, which would make be made a hard C or a K sound, in the P Celtic languages you'd see that with a they'd pronounce it with a P sound. Like I just probably I don't have a really expensive microphone and me making the P sound deliberately and strongly like that into it may have just you can tell how expensive my equipment is. All right, so the example of this language difference would be, let's, let's look at Malcolm Canmore because he's part of our story today. Can means the head, right? Can or can. So in, in the Q Celtic languages, you have a can. In Welsh, you see the word pen. And both of them are used to mean your actual head or they use them for terrain features as well. So you have all those Celtic place names that are that say Pen, like Penrith. And then you have the Q Celtic languages languages, and you have place names that start with Ken, like Kentire, Kentire. So that's the like a, a headland, a part that sticks off, like your head sticks off your body. Anyway, so there's the two different languages. So Cumbric you have you have the this old version of well I, I'll just say this Cumbric would have been closely related to Old Welsh it's just spoken farther north and I don't know what all the distinguishing features about Cumbric were that made it different from what became Welsh but they're very closely related that's this part of that was Cumbria or Cumberland in England right now that that language would have sp been spoken throughout southern Scotland and a lot of northern England, and I, and I'm not this. It's kind of way out the the scope of this episode to start breaking down that division and everything. But Ghost Patrick's name, I guess, what I'm wanting you to know is a is a Celtic lane. So he comes comes from this Gaelic royal heritage on his father's side. Yet and and Gaelic being Q Celtic, yet his name is a P Celtic Brythonic name. And so here's the deal. This this is significant. What what there's a kingdom in this part of the world that's called the Kingdom of Strathclyde, and the people were called the Strathclyde Britons. After the Vikings under Ivar, completely, well they see they laid siege to Dumbarton. They used used to be the Britons of Clyde Rock, and until the Vikings came, and they held out for a little while, but they did not succeed ultimately. And the Vikings destroyed that headquarters of this group of people. It moves farther east, and now they're called the Britons of Strathclyde instead of that particular location, this whole strath of the River Clyde and the Clyde Firth. They're the people of this, but their kingdom, that's their northern, the northernmost part of this kingdom. There's a rock north of Loch Lomond called Clachnam Breton and the, the Rock of the Britons. They think that may have been a marker, a territorial marker. That's how far north this kingdom stretched. And it went south, clear into northwest England, what's now the Lake District, which is one of the coolest looking parts of England, especially if you like mountains and lakes. Very scenic area. 
Um, not that I've been there, just looked at it on pictures, but it's very pretty. And so it stretched down to this part. And the part of, well, I should say this king, kingdom of Strathclyde, the Scots had actually overtaken this. They, it was in the, it, during the time of Ghost Patrick, is in the control of the king of Scots. And now if he was, if he was, if Ghost Patrick was so close of kin to this royal family here, that might have helped him gain territory in this kingdom of Strathclyde. So where he's coming from a Gallic heritage, he's making his base of operations in a part of the area that's actually Cumbric speaking. Now, by this time, there have been some Anglian inroads. Because before Scotland gained control of this, before the Strathclyde Britons had broken away, it, is, it was actually part of the kingdom of Northumbria, when Northumbria was a kingdom and not just an earldom. And eventually, they at some t- point in time, it's kind of obscure when, they actually get their own freedom. And so you have this sovereign kingdom of Strathclyde. And then later, during the time period we're talking about, it's taken over by Scotland. I hope I just haven't lost everybody. But I've been trying to lay out this. Because if I just jump in and start using terms to tell you who Ghost Patrick is without giving you a little bit of background, I just I feel like that would be worse. You know, like, this guy is just talking to us like he... like. He's doing the same thing that they're doing when they start quoting Latin without giving you an interpretation. He's just smug. and th- Okay, so I'm trying not to do that. Give you a little background. So this part of northwest England, part of the kingdom of Strathclyde, who has their own sovereign, but he's not totally sovereign because he still is subservient to the king of the Scots, which is how you get a guy from that royal family with territory in this Cumbrian-speaking area. And in fact, he had he was he was known as, before he becomes the Earl of Northumbria, he was the Lord of Allerdale. Allerdale is a big area to the southwest of Carlisle. So that's and and this area was still still, even though you had from back in the day when it was part of Northumbria, you had Anglians. You also another presence in this area I might add is Scandinavian settlement. Vikings were operational in this area. And we keep in mind we're still on the we're on the back end, on the tail end of the Viking Age, but we're still really we're still in it. So you have all those cultural influences going on here, but they there would have still been a local population who was Cumbric speaking. And I read up a little bit on this. Yes, this area would still have had Cumbric speakers. And, and I wonder if that's how he gets a Cumbric name. Ghost Patrick means it's the same as you see with, uh, um, like, uh, the, the, you see the Gil, part like Gillespie or Gil, Gilchrist, servant of Christ. Gillespie, servant of Espic, or there's different ways you can pronounce that, and I'm not a perfect on that, but that's the same thing going on, but instead of Gilla in Gaelic, in this Cumbric language, and in Welsh, it was Gwos, or Gwas, something like that, turned into Ghost. So we have Ghost Patrick, the servant, or devotee of Patrick. Um, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's referring to St. Patrick as Saint that Saint Patrick was originally a a Briton from the island of a Briton B R I T O N from the Isle uh, from island of Britain B R I T A I N during the Roman days who was taken captive by raiders from Ireland and taken back and lived there for a long time and anyway I don't know I don't know all the connections but he's the servant or follower of Patrick and it's not a family name 
especially if he comes from where I just said I, he may have had some kind of devotion to St. Patrick or maybe it was a place thing where he grew up. I don't know. But anyway, so he's coming out of Cumbria. He's a Lord of Allerdale. And, but on his, here's the deal. So he's on, so we've got a, a Gallic bloodline, a Cumbric cultural environment that he's coming out of. And, and then on top of that, his mother's side, on that side, he's descended from the kings, later earls of Northumbria. So when William of Normandy conquered the Anglo-Saxons in 1066, which is a very exciting time period in this, a lot going on there. So the Normans conquer this these collection of Anglo-Saxons that has been not too long ago all combined into one group of people. In 1066, they put their own man on the Northumbrian in the Northumbrian earldom, and this is Copsy. Guy, a man named Copsy. That's his name. <clears throat> he was only five weeks into his earldom when he was slain by a gentleman named, I don't know how gentlemanly he was, but his name's Osulf, O-S-U-L-F, who in turn was shortly thereafter killed by outlaws. And so you've got a, a vacancy there. Look, just like Ghost Patrick is not that far removed, he's like very close kin to the Gallic kings of Scotland or what's becoming Scotland. He's also through his mom's line very closely related to these earls of Northumbria. And they I saw some different things on here but one of the theories is he actually he paid William the Conqueror, William of Normandy, King William. He paid him to put him in that position there which which he had a pretty valid claim to by by blood anyway. And William takes it takes him up on it. So now he becomes the Earl of Northumbria. So is, this guy is a fascinating guy. He's, he's a mix of these, all of the, the biggest, most prominent ethnic linguistic backgrounds in this part of Britain. And he's now the Earl of Northumbria. That's a big deal. And so that's his position. The problem was he got involved in a rebellion against King William with some of the the northern... And I'm I haven't I haven't died. This wasn't part of the, what I was reading at all. But I my understanding is that the rebellion and, and this is pretty well documented. It wouldn't be way hard to check me on this and like go do some further reading of your own. But my understanding is that this is a local pre-Norman nobility aristocracy who are fighting back against Normans. Ghost Patrick joins in with them. The Normans, as as history plays out, become they're they're the winners here, and so what do you do with this Earl of Northumbria, who you allowed to for that position? Well, he's got to go. He's got to go. So Ghost Patrick flees to Scotland, where he has not very distant kin on the throne, and so at this time period, this the the person who's on the throne now is Malcolm Canmore, Malcolm the Third who gives him the earldom of Dunbar. And he needs a strong guy in the southeast because guess what's on the other side of... Guess what's to the south of this earldom? It's it's Norman-controlled England. So we've got Ghost Patrick now as the Earl of Dunbar. Okay, so let's let's say that how that relates to our clans that we mentioned at the very beginning. Is Ghost Patrick as Earl of the Earl of Dunbar... He begets this line of earls who are the earls of Dunbar, and this is where you get the name. 
So Dunbar is similar to other names in that it was the the name is first of all it's a place name. So the earldom wasn't named after Gospatrick, obviously. There's a place and the earldom is headquartered in that place of Dunbar. There's a town there, there's there was a castle there that they operated out of. And this is where the, the name, the surname Dunbar comes from. It's it's a it's an earldom that trans starts off as a title and, and eventually moves into a surname. So in that way, it would be similar to the Ross kindred, right? You had the earldom of Ross, and that changes hands, but eventually you have a kindred who are calling themselves after the earldom, which their family was holding, and it, eventually the earldom of Ross passes out of this kindred into other hands. Eventually it's... Anyway... That's a different story. I don't want to get too off on a tangent. But so you have the, that's where you got this kindred named Ross who actually don't hold the earldom of Ross anymore. But they're still named for that earldom. That's similar with the Sutherland clan. You know, the Sutherlands, it's the Gordons who end up being the earls of Sutherland. But you still have a group of people prior to this who have taken their surname from the earldom. And... Even though there's somebody else, another clan, the Gordons, a younger branch of the Gordons, uh, that who, who and still owe allegiance to the Huntley main branch, the, as in a similar way as the Campbells of Luden or the Campbells of Cawdor or the Campbells of Craig Nish would owe their allegiance to Campbell of Argyle. These Gordons who who marry into and obtain the Earldom of Sutherland, they're still owe their allegiance to Huntley the Earl of Huntley, who is the senior line and the head of the kindred. And this is this kin-based system that we're looking at in Scotland that's that's a little bit... It's, it's, it's more centered on kindred than England is for sure. So anyway, so you have a group of people called Sutherland. Anyway, that's, that's kind of how the Dunbars are. They're looking a lot like that. Now, eventually the Dunbars would follow that same pattern in losing the earldom and but they still they I mean you're left with a kindred who even though they're not in control of the earldom anymore they still have the surname of Dunbar and by this point by the time that they lose the earldom which is the mid 1400s they they have established own branches of their clan who have become kindreds in their own right like I mentioned earlier up in the in the province of Murray, you have a group of Dunbars. I think I read that the senior branch of the family today is the Dunbars of Mulcrum. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that's down in Galloway in the southwest of Scotland. That represents a senior line. But anyway, the, so you have this kindred called the Dunbars. And let maybe I'll talk a little bit about what happened. How did they lose the earldom? Well... They're becoming so. This Ghost Patrick sires many very capable sons, grandsons. The line, the people that come from him, did really, really well, and so well, in fact. And you just can't ever do so well until people start gunning for you. And that's just the way that this nasty world is. And I don't think the whole world is nasty, but that aspect of this world is nasty. The kingdom of the king, the king of the Scots, who at this for time period was James. Which, which James was it? Mid fourteen hundreds. It's not James the first. I want to think it was James the first, but I think I might be off on that. James, 
this King, it was a King James, mid-1400s. That's bugging me now. I didn't write that down. I get kind of turned around. I know that the Battle of Flodden happened with the James the Fourth. I remember James the Fourth because he was the last Stuart monarch to speak Gaelic well enough to converse in it. So that's that. That's my understanding. So anyway, we're in the mid 1400s. The Scottish king becomes. I wrote actually wrote down James the First. I believe that's what was in my reading. Becomes jealous of the power of the earls of Dunbar and trumps up some charges of treason against them. Now keep in mind, they have territory in England too and they were traveling and and residing in both Scotland and England and that provided enough of of a plausible plausibility that he could say, hey, he's colluding anyway. So he has charges thrown against him. They take the 11th Earl of Dunbar, throw him in prison, confiscate their lands. Okay, now the Dunbars are no longer the Earl of Dunbar, the Earls of Dunbar. And so that's what happened to that group of people. They're still a kindred, though. They don't cease to exist, and they still operate as a cohesive unit. And now we're, and we're, we're in this right area. So at a certain time period, so what about the, the Humes? The Humes descended from a junior branch of the Dunbars in the person of William of Greenlaw, who married his cousin Ada, who was a daughter of Patrick the First, Earl of Dunbar. So we're looking; he was his timeline was his life was circa 1152 to 1232, and so after the downfall of the Earls of Dunbar in the mid 1400s, the Humes continued to be a very powerful kindred, especially in the East March, the borders. In fact, it was a Hume that was often the so that title, the March Warden, and so just to let's let's go back to the we started this episode talking about borders. We're back in the borders here. The so oh, by the way, Dunbar, the the physical location of it is in the southeast of Scotland. Okay, and like I said earlier, the on the so, south bordering to the earldom to the south is England. So the Humes established themselves as a border kindred, and. So the way that the borders, and I mentioned this before in my episode, an introduction to the border reavers, you see you have the border between England and Scotland that runs southwest to northeast diagonally, and at the southwest, they just call that the West March, in the, and then in the middle, they call it the Middle March, and then on the northeast, even though it's not an east-west straight line, it's a very diagonal line, at the northeast end of it, they call that the East March. Okay, which makes sense because the West March borders the western shore of Britain, and in the East March, the it borders the the North Sea to, on the east coast of Britain, on both sides of this border. And how they would run this, both the Scotland and England each had a marcher lord for each of these marches. By the way, march comes from an old English word that means for borderland, right? So we had the Welsh marches. That's got some pretty cool history from it too. Then also you have this march area, this borderland, this frontier area, and it was very frontierish. Let me tell you, friends. So, so each each both England and Scotland, they have Scotland has a west march, and England has a west march, and that and the person that was in charge of that area was called the warden. So the Humes, now going over the east march, the Scottish east march, not the English, the Scottish, the Humes had that position for a long time. They were very powerful kindred in the southeast of Scotland. 
and and so like I said, they 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 branch off of a junior line of the Dunbars. So the the Humes really, I mean, they I don't know if I want to say if they would like it if I said they are Dunbars, but that's where they come from. That's their the stock that they branch out of is Dunbars. So you have these very two closely related kindreds, and the Humes. Now, the Humes were operational in Scotland on a national level, just like the Dunbars were, but they also had, and, and what I didn't get to f- get into, which I did do some looking on this, and it was really hard, I got to go back to some of the sources I used on my master's thesis, and I think I could find this stuff, because you have contemporary records on the border of raids that happened, and, and they would even talk about how much, how many... How, how many head of cattle they took and horses and sheep and they would and in the report on this they would mention the kindreds who were involved I remember the cares who were involved there I did an episode on them a little a little bit ago anyway they were mentioned specifically the Douglases were mentioned because Douglas were another like the Humes they were operational in Scotland on a national level they weren't a their whole history and identity is not wrapped up into just one locality and part region of Scotland. They weren't just a border clan. They were, Douglases were all over, like the Dunbars, all over the country. And the Humes were operational on that level too. But I believe, I think if we could get back into those records, which I'd like to, I just need a little more time, we could find Humes mentioned by name down on that, doing, doing raids, doing things Border Reavers did. The exciting stuff, man. And what is that? Well, the stuff that if you weren't one of them, you would hate them for. So yeah, it's it's pretty romantic. We're gonna go on a nighttime raid into enemy territory, and we're gonna. But what are we gonna do there? We're gonna find somebody's farm, and we might kill a few of the people who resist us, and we're gonna round up all of their cattle that we can and drive them back through the hills to our own territory. And when they try to pursue us on a hot trod, that's the hot trod was what you do if somebody just stole your stuff. You'd send the call out, and people were legally obligated to respond to your call. We're gonna get up a posse. You know, this all kind of, you know, the more I start talking about this, it, it kind of sounds a Western, if you're thinking about this in a, in a U.S. type of term. You know, if somebody does stuff and, and where, where higher levels of law are almost non-existent, you got to do what you got to do. Anyway, the hot trod. People were legally obligated to join up. They form a posse. They'd go chase the people who just stole their stuff. And maybe they'd get it back. Or maybe the guys are sending sending all the livestock with some of their party while they branched off a bunch of them to hide and ambush people who were following them. Anyway, I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty exciting history. It's I mean, I, I thrive on this stuff. I really find it very fascinating, but I, I also kind of want to include, if I was the farmer who just had maybe my, maybe my, my 17-year-old son thought I'd be bold and run out and oppose him and they just put an arrow in him or a spear... <clears throat> and I, my whole livelihood, like all the stuff that I've got, they were just carried off. I don't think I'd look at it as, oh, these guys are so daring and dashing and bold. They're dirt bags. But I'm not, I'm not saying that as Clint Edwards in 2019, because the other thing is I don't judge people based off my own values right now. See, the people who went on that that expedition, first of all. I'd, the situation I can't pick out one scenario because there's a whole bunch of them do we know that 
maybe those cattle were originally theirs because the feuding, the feuding and the raiding went both ways, my friends. And, you know, you just, I just don't know all the stuff that you want to know to make a judgment call on people's character. So, and, and that's, and that was also part of their culture back in that you did that same as in the highlands that we were mentioning before. This is one of the way an up, up and coming future head of the kindred is going to prove himself. We're going to go on a raid. Like I said, the main, main difference is the orders and the responses were carried out in Scots on the border and in Gaelic in the Highlands. And on the border, they were riding horses. In the Highlands, they weren't. And it's part of the culture. Like these are the, these are the values. And if you're raised up thinking the best thing that you could possibly do is lead your buddies on an expedition into the English, who we hate anyway. Could you think of reasons to hate the English if you're a border Scot? Probably. Probably. So we're going to go down and we're going to take everything that they've got because guess what? The last time the English forces came through here, we lost everything. I don't know. It's going back and forth, but I'll tell you this much. It is exciting history and it does make for good stories. So that's 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 where the... I'm, I'm telling you that because that's where the Humes are coming out of. That's They were a border clan. Very powerful. Very powerful clan. So, and they both, both the Dunbars and the Humes come from, trace their lineage back through the Earls of Dunbar, back to a gentleman named Ghost Patrick, who is just an interesting person in his mix of ethnicities. I imagining a guy that could probably function amongst the elite levels of the Gallic Scots, the... Britonic-speaking, Cumbric-speaking Britons of Strathclyde, as well the Angles of Northumbria. He could he could walk in their most elite circles and fit right in. His life was full of adventure, of extreme heights, then extreme loss as the rebellion fails that he was part of, and now he's got to go, maybe pretty uncertainly, to his cousin, the King of the Scots, and say, hey, what do you got, cuz? And maybe this guy hooks him up. Maybe he doesn't. Turns out he did. And now his fortunes swing back up and he's an earl again. And he begets a line of very successful Scottish nobles. I don't know. It's pretty cool stuff. And I just, it's these stories that draw me into this history. I hope you've enjoyed it. That's about all I got for you today. How am I doing on time? Seems like I, oh, oh yeah, like usual, I went way, way over, yeah. So, anyway, I hope you feel like it was it was worth listening to, this Ghost Patrick and the clans of Dunbar and Hume, as well as jumping back into some border stuff again, never lacking for excitement down there on the border. Anyway, thanks for joining me. Let's, so look, I know I have not given you all the information there is, all the cool stuff there is about the Dunbars, the Humes, the Earls of Dunbar. Let's keep this conversation going. You heard right at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned a gentleman who just barely, 14 minutes prior to the start of this episode, has messaged me. And and he, and he we look, our subject today happened to be right in where he, was, he wanted to talk about borders, the border reavers, and we did. And I'm just talking about that to show you that your your input, your comments, they do matter to me. If I skipped over you, forgive me. Pop back up on the radar. Give me some more comments back and say, hey, I mentioned this a long time ago, but you never 
I've never heard a match, but you didn't respond back in a personal message or on the podcast. And so just don't let it die. I'm not doing it because I want to shun you and because I don't like you. Just I, I don't keep track of every single thing in my life. My wife helps me. And I'm not completely disorganized, but every once in a while something falls through the cracks. So don't take it personally if it did. So, like again, like I said, this is not the uh, Dunbar Hume Ghostpatrick omnibus. It's just a conversation starter. So let's keep the conversation going. Or maybe there's something else you want to talk about. Get up there on Facebook. Uh, the, go on the Scottish Clans Facebook page, which is at facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. You can go to the Podbean app as well. Those are probably conversationally, those two, I, I haven't been getting a lot on the Podbean app lately. Those two and with Apple Podcasts in addition to that, those are probably the the best. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Facebook are probably the best, but they were also available on Stitcher. Not Stitcher, Spotify, one of those S ones. Spotify. I'm not on Stitcher yet, although I have looked into it. Go on there. If you're on the pod on the Podbean, there's you can just go right on there and make comments about the episode. And I love it. If you go to the Apple Podcast that you're listening on, go ahead and leave me a review. And then in the comment section, which it does afford you the space to leave a comment, talk to me about it. Start up a conversation. Ask a question refer back give me another source all the stuff i'm interested in it go to go to the scottish clans facebook page or do it there let's keep the conversation going and here's one more invite i want to make to you aside from continuing the the conversation in your platform of choice there's always a way to share these reach out to your friends who you know are interested in this and and share the link with them send a text to them with a link to this Somehow, there's always a way, all these platforms, they all, because it's Facebook and Podbean, and they all they all want you to share their stuff. So they all try to make it easy for you to share it. So that's all I'm inviting you to do, is reach out to somebody you know, as many as you think are interested in this, and let's get them involved. Thank you for joining me today, and until the next episode, I wish you the very best. <laughs>